0: participation for what the Spirit will be teaching us as we gather together in the name of Jesus Christ tonight. We are all here to receive. It's not a matter of one giving and all receiving, but all of us receiving from your Word and to see you manifested in your Son by the Spirit through the Word so that he can be manifested in our very lives and our very mortal bodies as we await his arrival, and his universal appearing. We thank you for this opportunity and ask for the grace and the mercy to help in this time of need so that we may grasp the things that you have for us unto a divinely approved livingness, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Now Romans 7 is some tricky territory for many reasons. One of them is in the history of interpretation of Romans 7, specifically. A biased, binary view, and I'll explain what I mean as we go, of humanity has raised its head. You can trace its roots to Augustine, and then you can trace it through Luther, and then Melanchthon in the Reformation in the 16th centuries century of the church and in that biased binary view of humanity by that I mean they divided up humanity that it split into the ungodly and the godly and of course the bias is we're the godly they're the ungodly we're the saved they're the unsaved we're the regenerate they're the unregenerate we're the good they're the bad and the ugly now, some in the history of interpretation have supposed that the desire to fulfill the law that is expressed with the "I" here, especially in Romans 7, 7 through 25, we're dealing with now. This is a very critical passage, and I've taken a lot of time on it, and I want to approach it with two or appro- two approaches, which are basically the same approach, but... One worded in a way that some of you will get it, and another worded in a way that others of you will get it. Not that I'm splitting up into a binary view that the group here, but there are different designs and different human beings. Some have supposed that the desire to fulfill the law that the I in Romans 7 expresses... Reveals that a person is already righteous or already saved or already regenerate, and only a saved or regenerate or a righteous person can even want to do or observe the law of God. And they assume that only a Christian can even have the aspiration or the will to do right. That's the assumption. The already righteous person is therefore in this interpretation sharply distinguished from the unregenerate or the ungodly. Now the failure in this interpretation is to recognize that this desire is that of a devout Jew a desire that is reflected throughout the Psalms of Israel. In fact, it's reflected in Psalm 1. It's reflected most notably all throughout the 176 verses, the 22 parts of Psalm 119. So the splitting of humanity into the ungodly and the godly in these interpretations is strangely biased in favor of the group represented by the interpreter. And that's what—that's something that when I write, read these things or study these things, I always put capital A-R-K-N-B, nap nota bene, for your own instruction. The bias of interpreters... is to present an interpretation in favor of their particular group now the splitting of humanity into the godly and the ungodly is always biased in favor of the group represented by the interpreter the bias of interpreters is a flaw that prevents truthful interpretation This bias of the, air quotes, Christian, closed air quotes, interpretation of Romans 7, does nothing to expose the group biases among the saints in Rome. Instead, it actually reflects the same kind of group bias that Paul is attempting to dismantle. The reason that Paul is so often misunderstood, sometimes even hated, is because of the wrong interpretation. The history of interpretation of Paul is flawed by bias and by an unrealistic and non-Pauline bifurcation or division of humanity. And so the entire thrust of the gospel is the justification of the ungodly, as Romans 4.5 says. For it was the ungodly for whom Christ died, in Romans 5.6. By the gospel we learn that there is not one righteous in all the human race, And that the righteous one is the man from heaven and not a man from the earth. Or we could say the man from the earth. The first man, Adam, is from the earth and is earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. This is where John comes in and says in John 3:13 in fact Jesus says this no man has ascended into heaven except for the son of man who first descended from heaven he's the man from heaven he's not the man from snowy river he's the man from heaven that's a movie apparently one not very popular in this place By the first man, Adam, all the human race was sold as slaves to sin, a cosmic power as we've seen. And this was true from Adam to Moses. Paul tells that story in Romans 5. From Adam to Moses, sin enslaved humanity. But sin wasn't charged or even defined until the law came. And by the law came the consciousness of sin. So through Moses came the law, the Torah, with its commandment. But sin was in the world already. Sin was in the world through Adam before the law was in the world through Moses. So what I've done is seen in Genesis 4, 7, the first time we see sin as actually a personified being is when God says to Cain after the homicide of his brother. If you were doing well, you could hold your head up high, but if you're not doing well, sin crouches at the door. Now, I've taken that and applied it to Romans 5. Before the law came, sin was already in the world enslaving humankind. And it was crouching at the door waiting for the law to come. And when the law came, it pounced and actually hijacked the law of God. So in Romans 7, what is usually understood is that there's a split inside a person that's being spoken of here the I there's a split so there's a kind of a schizophrenic split in the person that's not and that's how I understood it from the interpretation that I was handed down but I don't go by what I'm handed down with now I go with what I can prayerfully examine and still that not perfectly of course but I remember a book that was published once, and it was on Romans 7, and on the front there was a picture of a divided face on half. The half of the face was a smile, a kind of beatific smile, and the other half was a troubled, anxious, desperate person. And that was the interpretation of Romans, that the eye is split. Paul didn't split the eye, he split the law. And so he speaks of the same law, but as two different kinds of law, because there is the law of God that's holy and righteous and good and spiritual, four adjectives he describes the law by. But then he says, but I see another law. Now it's misunderstood by interpreters, and it was misunderstood by the interpreters that I used to read. That what he's saying is that's two, two laws. No, it's one law, but it's, it's... Let me just explain it this way. A woman marries a man who has always kept his best foot forward during the courtship stage. Oh, he's a sweetheart. Then one day he gets up in the morning after the honeymoon's over and he's an angry SOB and she says to him, you're like another person. You're not the person I married. You're another person. Now, in keeping with the need for fairness, we could reverse that and make that the woman. But what Paul is saying here is not that there's one kind of person and another kind of person in this I that's the person that's being doing the speaking here, but there are two Laws. It's the same law, but one is the law as it came purely from God through Moses. The other is the law as it was co-opted, commandeered, or hijacked by sin. So Paul doesn't split the person. He splits the law. And so... Sin was in the world already when the law came, and the law came in by a side door, but mo- but the sin was crouching at that door. Sin was already unleashed in the world through the first Adam's disobedience. So, once again, to borrow the personification of sin first in Genesis 4-7 we could say that sin was crouching at the door when the law entered through Moses. When the law entered, sin sprang into action in order to co-opt the law for its own demonically evil purpose, which is to enslave human beings. In fact, to enslave the whole creation which even screams now out for liberation. But God was not daunted by this. He never is. He wasn't defeated by this. In fact, it was his own purpose, righteous purpose, that the law would bring about a consciousness of sin. in human beings and that sin would intensify and actually multiply because of the law's entry in order to accentuate the need of the rectifying and life-giving role of the Messiah. We're aiming towards something in Romans 7 and it's Romans 8. What the law could not do, God did. What the law could not do because it addressed itself to the flesh, which is human resources alone, left alone. Human resources left alone. What the law could not do in that it was weak through human resources that it tapped God did sending his son and condemned sin condemned sin in the body of his son and that also opens up the way for the advent of the second divine mission of the Holy Spirit where if we walk or order our lives in dependence upon the spirit then the righteousness of God is produced in us but it's a divine action it's a divinely approved livingness, a God-approved livingness. Also a subject that we're trying to corral with a lot of other subjects. So God had a purpose that the law bring about a consciousness of sin in human beings. And that as we saw last week in Hebrews 10, to 2, the system of sacrifices for sins didn't take away the consciousness of sin. Only the blood of Christ can take away the consciousness of sin and the conscience and purify the conscience from dead works to serve the living God as priests. Hebrews 9.14. And so God's own purpose was that the law bring about a consciousness of sin in human beings and that sin would actually intensify and multiply because of the law's entry in order to accentuate and to anticipate the life-giving role of the Messiah, who by his resurrection became a life-giving spirit. A second flaw in the interpretation of Romans 7, then, which we've already alluded to, is that Paul is speaking of a division in the self, the I, the first person pr- pronoun used In Romans 7 7 to 25 when in fact he is speaking of a rift in the law he's very controversial in Galatians because he's in a theological fury against false teachers seducing and mesmerizing the churches that he planted in Galatia in Asia by a law observant gospel And there he accentuates the split in the law even more so by saying, yes, the law came from God, but the law came through a mediator, Moses, and it was by the hand of angels, and so he split the law between the law that is of God and the law that was taken over by sin in Galatians. He also made a very strong point in Galatians 3.21 that the law was impotent, totally weak, totally strengthless to do two things. One, to rectify. Two, to give life. And so the law, as he spoke about it in 2 Corinthians 3, and this brings up another subject, the letter, he calls it. The letter, letter, the grammatos of the law. The letter is a depiction of the law as co-opted by sin because the letter killeth the letter killeth he says or the letter kills the letter is of gives condemnation and death but the spirit gives life and righteousness or produces a divinely approved integrity or livingness and that's really what Paul's after here what Kind of livingness derives from this missionary, law observant missionary, and what kind of livingness derives from the grace, the uncontingent grace of God, that is, the grace that doesn't have to appeal to any contingency in man. And so the letter that kills is not the law, it's not equal to the law. The letter is the law co-opted by sin. Because the law, Paul says in Romans 7, the law didn't kill me. Sin, taking the law as a club, killed me. Using the law, co-opting it for its own purpose, slew me. The culprit is the sin, not the law. Now, the reason I'm saying these things carefully and slowly, and I'll do it repetitively in preparation of Romans 7, is that, These things all undergird this interpretation. There's been a whole long history of biased interpretation of Romans 7. And it makes Paul say something Paul never said at all. I know I called him, as you know. Better call Paul. In fact, I was going to call Saul, but when I got him, he said, I'm not Saul anymore, I'm Paul. And I said, okay. Now then, There is the law of God, which is holy, righteous, good, and spiritual. Read Romans 7, and you'll see these things. And there is the same law that is of Moses, which is co-opted by sin. It's like two different people, only it's two different aspects of the law. The law, just, pure, holy, righteous, good, spiritual. The law co-opted by sin, a killer, because sin is the... Killer and law is the club. The split is not in the self but in the law. And so Romans 7 is not about a battle between the lower nature and the higher nature of the Christian. It's about a battle that's more significant than that. What it's about is a, the entire or the whole devotedness of the loyal Jew which Paul is not negating. He's not degrading. He's not maligning it. It's about the whole devotedness or the entire devotedness of a loyal Jew or of a Gentile proselyte to Judaism who even by a total observance of the law becomes flabbergasted, amazed, thunderstruck, whatever you want to say, that what he or she perceived to be a power to produce rectitude and life, the law, brings about the very opposite, sinfulness and death, condemnation and death. So the law of God that the I, the personal pronoun I, I, aspires to observe in the hopes of finding life by it what's wrong with that what's wrong with the aspiration for life for liberty for peace there's nothing wrong with it and this isn't just a christian this isn't a christian See, Christians assume that any high aspirations have to be Christian. No one outside of our community of Christians can have a high and holy aspiration or desire. That's bias. There's some bad reasons why people hate Christians and there's some good reasons why people are rejecting Christianity and it's not because of what Christianity is, it's because of the biased representatives of it. But people are so rooted in it, watch out if you begin to discover the truth because you will be viewed as a heretic You will be viewed as cultish. You will be viewed, whatever words they use now, which is the last resort for idiots, is to accuse people of being in some kind of a weird group or cult or something because they are so steeped in wrong interpretations that they can't give an answer from a, a basis in truth, so they use accusations. And if that doesn't work, they use personal accusations, gossip, maligning, Slander the whole gamut. It's a trap. and it's a trap laid by the adversary, second Timothy 226. So pray for them. So the law of God that the eye aspires to observe in the hopes of finding life and rectitude becomes another law working in the eye that produces unrighteousness and death to the shock and amazement of the observer of the law. So again, if you want to go to Second Corinthians 3, which is really kind of off the path here, but it's not entirely, Paul calls this the letter that condemns and kills And distinguishes it from the spirit who produces rectitude and life. And rectitude there means a divinely approved livingness. A liberated and transforming livingness. I've seen it in many of you. You know why? Because you love in a way that you haven't before. Your concern is for others. Your prayerful concern for other people. Your compassion for the suffering of others even when you're suffering. When I see this as a pastor, it does my heart good. It combats all the satanic, and I'll call it that, accusations and assaults against, not me, but the message of the unconditional and universal grace of God through Jesus Christ. So, Paul has introduced this distinction between the letter and the spirit in Romans 2.29 also. That was his first sounding of a note. He is a Jew who is won by the spirit. And then again, in Romans 5.5, describing the true character of the true Jew as a lover of God. But we're only a lover of God because God pours out his love in us by the Holy Spirit, which is given to us, which he gave to us. And then again in Romans 7, 6b, the last verse in 7, 6 kicks off 7, 7 through 25, in which the last phrase is what? Not of the letter, but of the newness of the Spirit. We serve in the newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. The spirit in the letter. All these are hints to the true interpretation. It should be borne in mind throughout this section of Romans 7, 7 to 25. We've already looked at it exegetically, but we've got to go back and rehash it. That what Paul is demolishing is the group bias that the opposing missionary teacher has built into some of the saints in Rome. Or he may be anticipating this happening. It's a bias that assumes that we, and I'm quoting those who were influenced by the law-observant Christian Jewish missionary, we, Christian Jews or Gentile proselytes who observe circumcision and days and diets are better than they. The pagans, Gentiles who call themselves Christians, but who are not law observant. If we take the view of a long history of Christian close quote, quote, close quote interpretation, beginning with Augustine, continuing with Luther and Melanchthon onward, which assumes the I to be the Christian who's showing that he's righteous by or that she is righteous or converted or justified by by his or her desire to obey the law. In other words, the very fact that they want to obey the law means they're already a Christian because nobody else would want to obey the law. Not a loyal Jew who may have authored some of the Psalms, for example, But if we go along with that interpretation, we're at odds with Paul, just like the teacher that he's opposing. Paul's purpose is to show that despite, now listen carefully to this, despite the highest and most noble aspirations of a true devotion and allegiance to Torah, The law of God that's just and righteous and pure and holy and good. Despite the highest and most noble aspirations of a true devotion, it is nevertheless impossible to find liberation, life, and a divinely approved livingness by doing deeds prescribed by the law. Moreover, The assumption here is not that no one can fulfill the commandments of the law. We can't say no one can fulfill the commandments of the law. Because if you call Paul he'll say I was blameless. According to the righteousness required by Moses law. And my religious zeal at the same time is that by which I persecuted God's own community. So obviously, Paul was able to fulfill the commandments of the law blamelessly, impeccably, but that didn't liberate him from slavery to sin because he was murdering Christians at the same time. The people of God, he was attempting to destroy. So even when one does become blameless in the rectitude, quote, quote, close quote, that the law requires, one becomes dumbfounded by the realization that he or she is not at all liberated from sin or brought to life and rectitude by it. This is after having become blameless in observance of it. And that's what this I is. So one only has to come to a religious correctness. By the law. One can only come to a religious correctness. Like a political correctness. Only a religious correctness by the law. But that even when one does become blameless. In the righteousness that the law requires. One is dumbfounded by the realization that they're not liberated by it from sin or given life, the life that they so dearly aspired to. So Paul's assertion that he was blameless as far as the righteous rectitude required by the law in Philippians 3, six does not contradict Romans 7, but neither does it mean that Paul is speaking autobiographically here. I remember in Bible school and afterwards when some of us became pastors, pastors would call me. In fact, one time a pastor called and I called him back and he said, He's teaching in seminary and he said, What do you think? Is this about Paul before he was saved or is this Paul after he was saved? And the answer is, It's neither. That's not the I here. It's not autobiographical of Paul, whether pre or post conversion. To say one or the other is to miss the point. The I in Romans, personal pronoun, first person, personal pronoun, I. In my view now, after studying a lot longer on this, the I is the no one who can be justified, rectified, given life by adherence to the law, even if they adhere to it perfectly and impeccably and blamelessly. The I is the no one who can be justified in God's eyes by the works of the law. Even if entirely successful in observance of the law. For example, in observance of the law doesn't mean the moral code only, but when the moral code is broken, there are the sacrifices. And so the person who is blameless according to the righteousness of the law offers sacrifices. But then they find out in Hebrews 10, 1 and 2 that those sacrifices which they offer year after year in the Feast of Atonement and day after day in the continual burnt offering have never taken away the consciousness of sin. They never liberate the human will. So David gets pretty gutsy when he writes in the Psalms, sacrifice and offering is not what you want. If that's what you wanted, God, that's what I'd give. But instead, a body you gave to me, speaking as Messiah, in which I will do your will. And that will was obedience to the extent of death by crucifixion. Read Psalm 40. The Psalms are bursting with insights as to the Messiah, the royal representative of God. So Paul is saying that even when, and let's just say it this way, even especially when, The law is observed, sin gains a hold on the observer. Again, Paul says, as to the law, the righteousness required by Torah, the law of Moses, blameless. As to zeal, same breath, same guy, same time, same person, not a split personality, same guy. As to zeal, I persecuted the church of God. The assembly belonging to God. I persecuted as a blameless observer of God's law. The division is in the law, not in Paul. There's the law that came from God, and there's the law that's co opted by sin. I find another law at work in my members. It's not another law. It's the same law, but it's the law co-opted by sin. We're going to see that in Romans 7. Maybe tomorrow night we'll actually work into the exegesis of this in 714 to 25. But tonight's all prep, necessary prep, just like painting a house. All the hard work is scraping, sanding, prepping, and it's, I used to hate that part. And my grandfather would usually make me do all that. And then he'd come in and go, slap the paint on. Just to make me so mad. Or go strip that gym floor. You strip it down till it's, the wood is almost white. You've gotten it cleaned. You've stripped all the old penetrating seal off. And then my grandfather comes in and just slaps on the sealer so it's all sparkly. And believe it or not, I'm in the corner cursing under my breath. Until once the principal found me saying a whole string of oaths against the principal. And I looked up and there he is on the third stair. I think I quit swearing for like a day after that. It was like so powerful. But. The I in Romans. It's not Paul before, it's not Paul after. It's the no one, it's the nobody that can be justified in God's eyes by the works of the law. Remember Romans 3.20, left flank, squeezing into Romans 7, the center. So this entire argument showcases the necessity of God's action in Christ, a divine in Christ to do what the law could not do Romans 8 2 and 3 and it paves the way to the eschatological life of the church which is lived by the spirit in Romans 8 4 and following and which is a livingness which is by the life giving and integrity producing spirit And not by the death-dealing letter, which is the law co-opted by sin. So where is Paul getting off here? He's trying to show that those who are prejudiced against the Gentiles, because they're law-observant and the Gentiles aren't, Paul's saying this is where law-observance gets the eye. Into even more sinful production, more sinful intensity. So you have nothing to boast about against your Gentile brothers and sisters. Don't worry, he'll get after the Gentiles. We've already done that. Gentiles, curb your enthusiasm too. God has not forsaken his people Israel. His first election of Israel. Not by a long shot. That's on the other side of the center hot in Romans 11. So, I can just hear someone hears part of this message tonight. You know, he's an anti-Jewish person. He's anti-Semitic. He hates Jews. And then the next thing is, the next person says, he's like Hitler. (laughs) And so you got this reputation out there and you're going, where the hell did that come from? (laughs) What I'd like to do is go as a guest speaker to their church And then dye my hair and comb it down here. And have a little mustache. And just say let's praise God. (laughs) So. What Paul is after. Is a God approved. Liberated livingness. That comes about. With a radical epistemological renewal or a renewal of the mind in Romans 12, 1 and two, which the saints begin to experience in a unified community that inherits the kingdom of God. He wants them to inherit the kingdom of God even now, but then completely Galatians five nineteen to 21, a much maligned, also much misinterpreted passage is not dealing with an individual's production. So they go to hell if they do these things or they don't inherit the kingdom of God if they're adulterers or this or that or that. Paul's talking totally in the sense of a community of believers. A community of believers that are trying to be righteous by the works of the law are going to intensify their sinfulness and produce all those works of the flesh. And a community that does that never does inherit the kingdom of God. They lose their character as a church. It's a community interpretation that works there. But the fruit of the spirit, which is the inheritance of the kingdom, the fruit of the spirit is the inheritance of the kingdom. It's love, joy, and peace. Or in Romans fourteen seventeen, the kingdom of God is what? righteousness which is a divinely approved liberated transformed livingness in the holy spirit and peace and joy in the holy spirit that community that church is really a church they're inheriting the kingdom of god as their experience now they're not fighting and they're not divided up into sects and factiousness and committing adultery and murder and hatred and envy and all the rest of that stuff They're inheriting the kingdom of God in the form of the fruit or the production of the Holy Spirit. The works of the flesh are intensified by the eye that attempts to find rectitude and life by observance of the law. I think Galatians is in my future, in our future. So of major significance then for Paul's argument as a circumcision free missionary he has a law free mission to the Gentiles. They don't have to come in to the people of God through circumcision through the observance of dietary laws through abstaining from certain foods that contain blood through abstaining from pork. It's the apocalypse of Jesus Christ, the revelation of Jesus Christ, that awakens them, not observance of the law. And so of major significance for Paul's argument as a circumcision-free missionary to the Gentiles is this dialectic of contradictories in which he, as we've been showing in the first four chapters of Romans, he engages with a law observant Missionary. It's not a matter of Paul as a Christian versus the missionary as a Jew. It's not Christian versus Jew. What's at odds here are two missions two missions to the Gentiles. One by a Jewish missionary named Paul, whose mission is free of law observance. It is uncontingent grace. That's more important than unconditional. Uncontingent. That's a better ad adjective. Uncontingent grace means there's no requirement or contingency on the part of the person addressed by the gospel. It's unconditional grace. It's uncontingent. It's extended and given without a need of a response in the recipient. So Paul isn't fighting Judaism here. Paul isn't criticizing the Jewish person who has allegiance to the Torah of God. Not at all. He's not attacking Judaism and never has. Not in Galatians or Romans as he's been slanderously reported to be doing. He's not doing that at all. The battle is between or the contradictory dialectic is between two missions to the Gentile peoples One is a law observant mission, which Paul is undoing in Romans 7. The other is a law free mission of unconditional, uncontingent grace to the pagans by which the justification of God comes to the ungodly. That's what's being opposed. Those are the two opposing points. And when this Paul, in dialectic of the contradictories, he engages with a law-observant missionary to the Gentiles, especially with Psalm 143 and verse 2, which I've cited many times because it's significant. The writer to the Psalms speaks to God and he says, please do not enter into judgment with your servant because no one alive is justified in your sight. No one alive, no human being ever under in Adam's ontology can ever be rectified in your view. So don't enter into judgment with me. Please. No one alive can be justified in your view. Now, Paul takes that and he uses an a fortiori, which means if that's true, then all the more this is true if I can do 100 push-ups and demonstrate it, no way in hell I can, but if I could do 100 push-ups up here without stopping and then got up and then I could say to you, I can do 15 push-ups, you you'd say, well, of course you can. You just did 100. Paul uses the same a fortiori with an incontrovertible, undeniable interpretation of that passage where he says, no flesh can be justified in God's eyes by the works of the law. You say, wait a minute, Paul tagged something on to Psalm 143 three two. No, he didn't. He used the a fortiori argument. If nobody alive anywhere by any means can be justified in the sight of God, then certainly nobody anywhere can ever be justified in God's eyes by observance of the law. He's hammering down that. In fact, Romans 3.20 Citing or letting Psalm 143 2 echo there into that passage is devastating to the law observant Christian missionary. And it doesn't matter that he's a Jewish Christian, he might be a Gentile proselyte to Judaism who's requiring this. It doesn't matter. He's a, a law observant missionary. And there were law observant missionaries that went into Galatia. And tried to undo the work of Paul who said who you've been taken away from a gospel by another gospel, which is not the gospel of God. And therefore you are forsaking the one who called you by the grace of Christ. So the apostle lets this verse echo into his argument in such a way that it becomes conclusive as far as scriptural proof that no one can be justified or rectified or brought into God-approved livingness, the abbreviation would be G-A-L, which is also the abbreviation for Galatians, God-approved livingness by the works of the law. So Paul presents a speech in character of a person who identifies himself as I whose aspiration is honorable and whose desire to fulfill the law to find life and righteousness is entirely admirable. But they find once they have fulfilled all that the law requires that they have not found what they desired to find, which is life and righteousness. They have only found rather an enhanced slavery to sin and death as a result. Because they have to discover what Paul already outlined in Romans 5. The entrance of the law meant that sin co-opted the law, making it impossible for anyone to find life or righteousness by means of it. He's not knocking the aspiration. Who can knock someone's aspiration to discover life? and righteousness, and peace, and freedom, and to seek it. Paul isn't attacking that. So the apostle lets this verse echo into the center of Romans from the left flank. It's really an invasion. He also makes the exegetical move, which brings the point home with apocalyptic force. What I propose to do then, and I'm not done. I'm only half done with what I wanted to say tonight. I had to take it carefully for for your sake too. What I propose to do, and what I've been doing, is to take this echo from Psalm one forty three two, Septuagint one forty two two in the Greek, into Romans three twenty, along with Paul's exegetical move regarding the. Impotence of the works of the law to bring about a divinely approved livingness and to let this echo continue to sound into Romans 7 where Paul illustrates this principle by a dramatic speech in character to show that because sin has commandeered the law, the law cannot be the means of justification or of bringing a person into the liberated livingness that's divinely approved. He says in Galatians, he says it this way, circumcision is nothing, neither is uncircumcision, neither one of those has power. But what has power is a faith that works by love, a faithfulness in participation with Christ, because he says, in Christ Jesus. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision is anything. But what's really something is a faithfulness in Christ, with Christ Jesus, that works by love. And love is what the law required all along. All the commandments hang on this. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and yet you will love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus added from Leviticus 19, 18, pinning it on to Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5. That's the whole law. All the law is gathered up in this. But that love is God's gift of his own love to us by the Holy Spirit who pours it out in our hearts. So what really works is not a person observing the law, but a faith given by God that works by love in the Spirit. We, Paul said, we as opposed to those law observant missionary teachers and their followers, we wait for the hope of righteousness by the spirit. We through the spirit wait for the hope of righteousness. Now I'm going to close with this because it's just an illustration. I heard a song by one of the minstrels of the millennials I, I like all music I really do I like all music and I listen to the 40s music once in a while my uncle pops up on the Jimmy Dorsey Bob Everly and once in a while my uncle Ray shows up in the Glenn Miller things on the 40s and we listen to the Frank Sinatra station because Pam likes Frank Sinatra and the Beatles And some of the noob jams and stuff like that. But I heard a guy singing and I hate the song. I hate it. I'm sorry to all millennials, which I don't know what age group that is, but I think it means young people. But his song says, we're waiting for the world to change. What? Well, that's a great drumbeat to lead the millennials. Waiting for the world is not going to change. The world is an evil age. You can wait all day long until hell freezes over. Oh, wait, it has. But you can wait all day long until you can build a snowman in a blast furnace. It's an evil age. And it's only going to be overcome by the coming of Jesus Christ. I'm not waiting for the world to change. I'm waiting for the Spirit to produce the righteousness in me that God requires, but I'm waiting for the Spirit to produce the righteousness. And guess what that'll do? If a lot of people are waiting for the Spirit to produce that kind of righteousness, the world might change. We're passively waiting. You see, let's produce a whole generation of beta and gamma and delta males. It gets worse as you go down, you know, omega males. Let's produce a whole generation of passive pacifists waiting for the world to change. No, we, through the spirit, wait for the realized hope of a divinely approved livingness produced in us by the Holy Spirit. Because in Christ Jesus. Circumcision and uncircumcision don't mean anything. Social caste or class doesn't mean anything age group doesn't mean anything ethnicity and race doesn't mean anything gender doesn't mean anything. What means something is a faithfulness that works by love. That's what Paul's after and when you have a faithfulness that works by love what do you got a community in unity glorifying God through Jesus Christ living a divinely approved livingness, liberated livingness by the Holy Spirit, standing fast in the freedom wherewith Christ has made us free and not being entangled with a yoke of slavery, walking together by means of the Spirit, inheriting the kingdom of God even now that we will one day inherit completely. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity. We pray that it will provide a runway into perhaps a little more clear and coherent interpretation, uncolored by bias, of Romans chapter 7, which continues the apostle's argument and that complies instead of opposes his universal salvific views of mankind. And we thank you for this privilege, Father, And we do not demean former interpreters of the scripture. They did what they could with the light that they had. And you don't hold them accountable and judge them. So far be it from us to do so.